Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Um, and I'm, I'm glad to be back on Palm Sunday. My, uh, you've probably heard me say several times before that a lot of times in, in Christian life, we get the holidays wrong. We, we don't fully quite understand what holidays are for. There's, they're a chance for us to reorient and refocus our lives around the truths that we claim to hold dear. And for some reason, though, we, we end up following the world's lead in so many different ways. Um, if this were the week after Thanksgiving, right, the moment it's the, the day after Thanksgiving, we pull out the Christmas decorations, we start getting ready for Christmas, and we start saying things like, like Jesus is the reason for the season and keep Christ in Christmas because we are trying to make sure we, the world is celebrating this holiday. And so we are, in some respects, trying to ride the coattails of this holiday and trying to refuse it with some religious significance. But when it comes to Easter, the, the world is kind of busy, right? The world is, there's spring break, and there's concerts going on, and there's travel, and, there's, and we're just kind of exhausted. And so the world isn't, isn't looking to celebrate Easter, it's, you know, bunnies and eggs, and it's, and it's kind of fun, but it's going to move on pretty quickly. And if we're not careful, we'll fall into that same, that same trap of making Easter the other holiday in the Christian year. Because as Christians, Easter is what makes us who, us, who we are. Easter is the defining thing that, that, that makes us Christians. If it weren't for Easter, um, we wouldn't be Christians. The whole purpose of Christmas, the whole purpose of the cross was the triumphant resurrection of Jesus on the third day. So that's why I'm glad we can, we can set aside some time uh, to think about as we prepare for Easter. If you, if you haven't been thinking and contemplating what, what the purpose of Easter is and, and how we can live as Easter Christians and how this can be the pivotal and transformative truth that we, we surround our life around, um, then take some time this week and contemplate it. Another way in which I'm, I'm glad we, we have a chance to think about it is because sometimes, because we don't quite know how to celebrate Easter, if we're not careful, uh, we'll end up just celebrating Good Friday. And here's what's weird. Uh, Jesus was crucified on, on, on Friday, but the story didn't stop there. And sometimes we forget that. If all Jesus ever did was die on the cross, he was a good man who died for other people's sins, and that's a really sad story. But the Christian truth, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, for I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that he was buried, and he rose again. And that's the powerful truth that we have to find a way to, to embrace this Easter. So many times uh, we make Easter about uh, Good Friday, mourning and sacrifice and death. And though all those things are important, but the, the Christian claim is that sin and death and destruction and defeat don't have the last word. That the last word is Christ's victorious resurrection. It's triumph and joy and celebration and victory. And that's one of those things we have to make sure we, we celebrate in Easter, that we can live triumphantly, not because we've earned anything, but because Christ has defeated our great enemy. And so we're going we're gonna to look today at, at Palm Sunday. If, if you're unfamiliar with the story, a week before Jesus was executed, uh, he came riding into the city of Jerusalem, riding on a donkey. And he was greeted by crowds shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were, they were celebrating the coming of a victorious king and the declaration that the Messiah, the promised one of the Old Testament, had finally appeared. And it's a, it's a wonderful time to begin our celebration of, of what Easter is by, by joining in that celebration. But Palm Sunday has another side to it. And it's important that we, we make sure we learn the whole story. You see, 
those same people who cried out for, uh, to welcome Jesus as the victorious conqueror coming into the city, five days later they cried out for his blood. What happened? What changed? What transpired that would cause people to say, here comes the Messiah, save us now, to crucify him, crucify him. I want to look today at the, what happened on Palm Sunday. I want to look at what Jesus said. I want to look at uh, what the crowd demonstrated that they heard by their actions. And I want to contemplate what went wrong. What transpired between Sunday and Thursday that they ended up uh, becoming uh, disillusioned and disenchanted and disenfranchised by this person that they once proclaimed as Lord? And then last, I want to ask ourselves what we can learn so that we can avoid making that mistake. Because I, I, I think you can admit there have been times of of energetic and fervent and passionate and eager worship on your part. And then all of a sudden you find something that causes it to turn cold. You become disappointed and bitter and frustrated with God. How can we uh, learn the lessons of Palm Sunday? So if you, have your, if you have your Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, as we contemplate, um, as we tell the story and try to learn um, what went on that day. So first... What did Jesus say? What did Jesus say as he came in that day into Jerusalem? Matthew 21, starting in verse 1. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, you shall say, uh, uh, says anything to you, you shall say to them, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This was taking place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. And so uh, Jesus says, uh, Jesus goes and he gets the donkey and he's going to ride in. This is done to fulfill a prophecy from the Old Testament, Zechariah 9.9, that promised that, that the Messiah would come not riding on a, on a victorious war horse leading an army, but he would come humbly on a colt, on a foal, on a beast of burden. And so Jesus here openly declares that he is the promised one of Israel. If you read the Gospels, you find that frequently um, when Jesus heals somebody or someone confesses to know who Jesus is, he frequently quiets them down. He says, someone says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he goes, you need to keep that to yourself. You're the Messiah. Shh, don't tell anybody. Um, he's trying to keep it a secret. And here the mask is off. He is openly and loudly proclaiming that he is the promised one of Israel. He is their Messiah. And he does so, so, that he does so in a way that there can be no mistaking. If you notice, it says uh, he brought a donkey and a colt. Because there was some confusion, there was some debate in the, in the, in the, among the Jews of Jesus' day about whether the passage meant a donkey or a colt. And so they were, there were debates, and there was a colt faction, and there was a donkey faction. Okay? And there were people who were like, eh, I think it means donkey. And some people said, I think it means colt. And Jesus wanted to make sure there was absolutely no room for missing the point. He didn't want people to go, yeah, he's riding a donkey, but I'm more of a colt guy myself. And so I don't know. I, I just don't see it. I don't see it. I see donkey. I, I, I think colt. Um, you know, it's one of those things. It's, it's sort of proof that something we're all prone to, right? Every, it's an often lampooned aspect of American Christianity is that we form factions, 
right? We divide ourselves. We divide ourselves among, th- among lines that don't seem to matter, like the, the instruments we use to play in, in church or the clothes we wear or, um, you know, or what side the piano's on or the color of the carpet. And we can get in these really bad fights, but the interesting thing is it's, it's just a fact of everybody. We, we all are factionalizing people. You can split a city over, um, you know, over political parties or over a football team or anything like that. We are faction-creating people. And Jesus is saying, I'm not going to be a part of a faction. I'm going to declare openly so that you have no room to miss the message. I am the one you're looking for. Well, what did they hear then? What did the people hear? Um, and, what did, and you can figure this out by looking at what they did. By looking at what they did, you can figure out how they understood the Messiah to be. Because each of these acts that they, that they did along the road were uh, not just the spontaneous acts of people who were eager to welcome the Messiah. They were acts of significance that had historical and religious meaning that demonstrated that who they understood the Messiah to be. So if you look back in Matthew chapter 21, you read um, verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. And the crowd going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. They did three things. Uh, They did three things as he came in here. The first one uh, was they laid their coats on the ground. They laid their coats on the ground. And this was a a symbolic reenactment of a passage in the Old Testament. A passage in the Old Testament in the book of 2 Kings. um, The story goes something like this. 2 Kings 9. There's a king in Israel. And that king has fallen under the judgment of God. And God has withdrawn his blessing from that king. That king is no longer the king that God has ordained and blessed as the rightful king of Israel. And he wants a different king anointed in secret as as the real king. And so Elisha the prophet sends a messenger to this guy named Yehu, one of the great Old Testament names. No one ever wants to name their kid Yehu anymore. Um, Yehu and Melchizedek are the two that I'm really so jockeying for like, if, you, if you're expecting a child, think about it. Consider, just consider. Um, but uh, they laid their coats on the ground. And so uh, they go find Yehu and they anoint Yehu a king in secret. And look at what uh, 2 Kings 9 verse 13 says. Then they hurried, and each man took his garment and placed it under him on the, on the bare steps and blew the trumpet, saying, Yehu is king. It was a statement about this is a real king and not that one. They want, there was a declaration that they thought the Messiah was going to be a revolutionary. See, the Jews of Jesus' day were oppressed by Rome. There was a guy calling himself king. His name was Caesar, and they wanted him out. And so when they, when they laid their coats on the ground, they were saying, we think this is God's anointed. And we think that God's anointed's job is to kick out the, the king that's currently in power. We think he's going to be a revolutionary. And we look forward to his deliverance. They didn't just lay their coats on the ground. They, they waved branches, and specifically palm branches. Um, again, this isn't just a spontaneous overflow of, of, of eager worshipers. This is a deeply symbolic act. And it, this goes back to the intertestamental period, to the time between the, the close of the Old Testament and beginning of the New, about 200 years before Jesus. Um, Judea at the time was under the rule of, of uh, Assyrian uh, empire named the Seleucids. And one of the kings, Antiochus Epiphanes, went into Jerusalem and sacrificed a pig on the altar of God in, in the temple. And this caused a massive revolt. 
and a man by the name of Judas Maccabeus. Uh, maybe you've heard of the book of Maccabees. Um, by the way, Maccabeus wasn't his last name. It was his nickname, and it meant the hammer. Okay, it's a great nickname, Judas the hammer. Um, I keep wondering, like Steve Jones doesn't get too many nicknames over because it's just so easy to say, but if anyone's ever looking to give me a nickname, I just want to throw out hammer as a possibility because <laughs> I just, I don't know, I think it works. Um, but Judas Maccabeus, he raises an army, he kicks out the Syrians, and he purifies the temple. Um, the Feast of Hanukkah that happens right around the time of Christmas is the feast that celebrates the rededication and the purification of the temple by the Maccabees. And the Maccabees briefly set up um, their own little Judean Jewish kingdom and rule. And their symbol was the palm branch. The palm branch. If you, in archaeology, we can go and we can find coins. And on the coins, you can find um, minted by the Maccabees that used uh, the palm branch as their royal symbol. And so the Jews, by waving palm branches as they came into the city, were declaring that they expected this king to be a righteous judge. You see, a judge like the Old Testament judges. If you ever read the book of Judges, it's a wonderful book. It's the seventh book in the Bible. Um, and every single story in the book of Judges, these aren't judges like law court judges, they're deliverer judges. Every single story falls into a fourfold uh, pattern. Then Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then, so God delivered him in the hands of an oppressor. And so Israel repented and cried out to God. And so God raised up a judge. The judge's job was to throw off the yoke of the oppressor and to purify his people, to redeem them, to restore them, to cleanse them. So then by waving, by waving palm branches, they're saying, we hope this Messiah, we expect this Messiah is gonna, be, um, is gonna be a righteous judge, someone who will kick out our oppressors and who will purify and restore appropriate and correct worship of Almighty God. Last, they were singing royal hymns. Sometimes it's easy for us to, uh, to go read Bible words and just skip over them as Bible words, things you say in church and don't really mean or don't really understand. But these words had profound significance. Hosanna means save now. We sang the song today, Hosanna, you are the God who saves us. Hosanna means save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. They were looking for a new David. They were looking for a coming king, and they wanted that king that would restore Israel to its rightful place under the Davidic kingdom. They were looking for a restorer. In all of these things, a revolutionary, a righteous judge, and a restorer, um, were they wrong? Were they wrong? What caused the transference that, that led them from shouting out these hymns of praise to calling out for his blood days later? And that's the amazing thing. They were both exactly right and completely wrong. They heard clearly and understood deeply, and they profoundly missed the point. They knew clearly who the Messiah was supposed to be. They just misunderstood uh, how he came to do what he did. You see, he had come to be a revolutionary, but he didn't come to dethrone the Roman emperor, but the rebellious self that sits on the thrones of the hearts of sinful men. It's been the temptation ever since, ever since uh, the serpent told Eve. What was the temptation that, that the serpent tempted Eve with? He said, um, eat this fruit because God knows in the day that you eat him, eat, eat the fruit, you will be like God. Every single one of us wants to erect ourselves on the throne of our own lives and rule. We want to be in charge. We want to control. We want to dictate. Um, and we want to use God to overthrow the people who want to rule us. We don't want to God to intervene in our own lives. He came to be a righteous judge, 
But he came not to defeat Rome and not just to cleanse the temple, but to sanctify and cleanse his people. You see, the Jews thought that the problem was Rome or, the, 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 or, or corrupt temple worship. They were unwilling to turn their eye inward and say, maybe I need to be cleansed first. There was a, a wonderful story by a, um, by a, a Christian author at the, at the beginning of the 20th century named G.K. Chesterton, who is, a, who is a columnist in the London Times, and he was asked to contribute to a series of editorials about what was wrong with the world. And so the, the theme of the essay is all these great minds were asked to write an essay on uh, what is wrong with the world, and he returned a two-word essay that simply said, I am. I'm wrong. I'm what's wrong with the world. I'm what's wrong. All of us, all of us uh, excuse our own uh, sin or brokenness, and we want to accuse it in other people. We want to use God to fix the brokenness in other people's lives, and very rarely do we want to turn the, um, the, the, the light of introspection on our own souls. I've heard people say, uh, we want ourselves to be saved by grace and everybody else to be saved by works. So he came to be a righteous judge, but he came to deliver us uh, from sin. He came to be a restorer, but he came not to restore Israel to the place of power and wealth and privilege, but rather to restore her to a place of service as the vehicle of God's blessing to the nations. See, God's plan was bigger than just a political plan. God's plan was bigger than an economic plan. God's plan was bigger than a social plan. God wasn't trying to subvert the paradigm and make Israel the oppressor. He was trying to fulfill the plan that had been at work since day one that the world was good but fallen, that he created it good, and because of our sin, it's fallen into decay. And his big plan wasn't just to um, exalt this one people, but to use this one people as a blessing to restore all of creation. One of the great passages of Easter is Romans 8. And if you ever go read Romans 8, it, you might know Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good for them that love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. But there's a verse right before it that, that is powerful. It says, all creation groans with expectation to be released from the futility it was subjected to because of our sin. That all the decay and death and stuff like that is in the world and God is at work to restore, not just a specific people's fortunes, he's, but, he's, but to restore all people to himself and to restore uh, this whole world, this good but fallen world. If you look at, at the very end of the story in Revelation 21, the picture of, of when God finally does it all, when he will make a new heavens and a new earth. And he says, behold, I make all things new. And there will be no more death or suffering or pain and sorrow. God will wipe away every tear from every eye because the former things have passed away. That's what God came to restore, not just the narrow fortunes of one people, but to restore the brokenness of the world back to what it is, what it was supposed to be, what he created it to be. You see, they understood clearly and they profoundly missed the point. I suppose you're saying, um, but that's not me. I would never do that. This is, this is, what, does, what does this have to do with me? I'm sorry that that happened that way, um, but I'm not the kind of person who would, who would cry out for someone's blood. I'm not the kind of person who would, who would walk away from somebody I had fervently worshipped. That wouldn't be me. If we're not careful, we'll make the same mistakes. So what can we learn from this? What is, what is the takeaway for each of our own lives? You see, I think the lesson of Palm Sunday cuts to the heart of how we deal with disappointment with God. Every single one of us uh, comes to God for a specific reason. In fact, it's a good thing. Paul, uh, John, the first words of Jesus in the Gospel of John are simply, what do you seek? That God starts us with our desires. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, you'll find rest for your souls. Come to me. 
And in all the stories of the Gospels, people come to Jesus for things. And, and it's an interesting way to look at how Jesus both fulfills and frustrates their desires. How a lot of times gives, Jesus gives them what they, what they really want and not what they were expecting. So many times uh, we can come to Jesus for things and it's not going to work out the way we thought. And when that happens, we can find ourselves disappointed or disillusioned, frustrated or bitter. We can be worried and confused. We can be perplexed. And many of us, if we're not careful, can either uh, walk away and find a new Lord or remain bitter at the one that we claim to serve. And so learning the lessons of Palm Sunday is about learning to handle this disappointment. And I find there are three lessons that if I, would, if I could leave you with, um, lessons that these people needed to learn, and by contrast, we need to learn as well. First, submit to God's position. Submit to God's position. You see, uh, the people on Palm Sunday, uh, they wanted to be in control. They wanted to determine what God was going to do and how. They actually didn't want God, they wanted a gopher. They didn't want a father, they wanted a fixer. They wanted to come to God with a, with a plan and see God carry it out. And you know, um, we have a hard time with this as well. We live in America where we get to vote our politicians into power. And because of that, uh, we feel responsible for and in control of the people who rule us. And if we're not careful, that will translate in how we look at God and we'll be mistaken. Well, we, we as Americans have a hard time handling the fact that God is God and there's nothing we can do about it. That he is Lord and that we are not. And one of my, one of my favorite uh, quotes or, or, or analogies or jokes, if you hear, know me long enough, you'll, you'll hear me say it multiple times. You know what the difference between me and God is? God doesn't think he's me. Uh, every one of us wants to set ourselves up on the throne of our own lives and rule from on, from on high. We want to treat God as an advisor or a gopher, someone who will do the heavy lifting for us, but we ultimately want to be in control. And when, uh, our, and when we live this way, our lives are either characterized by deep arrogance and pride, or when we suffer defeat and we don't know how to get out of this thing because all of our plans have gone for naught, we sink into deep depression and anxiety and despair and hopelessness. And to either one of those extremes, God says, just take yourself off the throne for a second. Put me where I rightfully belong. Submit to God's position that God is Lord. He is a loving and strong and wise God, but he is Lord and you are not. Neither am I. Second, surrender to God's plan. Surrender to God's plan. You see, they had a plan of what they, want, they, of what they wanted God to do. They knew who the Messiah was supposed to be and they wanted uh, they wanted to simply apply the truths of who the Messiah was supposed to be to their current situation. They had, some of them had political agendas, some of them had economic agendas, some of them had uh, social agendas, and they were simply going to use God to do what they wanted. And God, God comes to us and says, look, um, lay down your plans. Lay, down all, lay, them, lay them all down, all your hopes, all of your dreams, all of your fears, all of your favorite wishes. Um, lay them down and find your hope and joy in a plan that's bigger than you, in, a plan of, in the plan of a God who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond what we ask or think. You see, God is stronger than us. God is wiser than us. He knows more. He sees deeper. His, his, his plan is, includes us. It's for his glory, but it's for our good. And we have to find a way to surrender to our plan, to his plan. Most of us 
uh, most of us treat prayer as if we're, we're coming to God with a punch list, right? We've got a plan, and he is the guy who's going to go get it done for us. And we come to the sovereign God and creator of the universe and give him a list of things he needs to do today. As if he hasn't thought of it. As if he hasn't thought of it and all these other things. As if his, his big plan doesn't include us. He's not asking us to come up with his, a plan for him. He's asking us to surrender to the plan that he's put in place. To, to realize that our lives are not going to turn out the way we thought. And that's a good thing. Last, uh, we can submit to God's position. We can surrender to God's plan. We can be satisfied with God's provision. You see, they simply weren't satisfied. Even though maybe the ones that got it, right? Oh, he came, to, he came to, to do this other thing. Like, well, what about the Romans? What about the temple? What about, what about, they had this, is that all there is kind of mentality? Um, even after they understood, many of them were thankful, but they still cared about, they cared about the Romans more importantly. So many of us come to, come to God with what we want God to do for us, and we're unwilling to accept the fact that God gives us what we need. Maybe not what we expected, maybe not what we wanted, but what a good and loving God has decided that we need. You know, there's a, there's a passage in the Bible where, uh, where Jesus deals with, um, where, where he says, God knows what you need before you ask him. And this is actually a, the reason why I sometimes I have a hard time with prayer. Because, because God knows what I need before I ask him, sometimes I don't pray. But in, a, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter five, uh, Jesus says, um, don't use meaningless, meaningless repetition as, as, as the Gentiles do when they pray, for they suppose they will be heard because of their many words. For your heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask him. And if this were the Steve Jones translation, the, the Steve the Hammer Jones translation, um, it would say, therefore don't worry about praying. God knows what you need, and so don't bother him. Just go about your life. But instead, Jesus says something else. He says, therefore pray in this way. And he gives them a new way of praying because you can count on the fact that Jesus will give you what you need every day. Therefore, you can pray for his kingdom to come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You can pray for that daily bread, that daily provision. You can pray for uh, forgiveness to be realized in your own life and to operate in the lives of other people. You can pray to be delivered from the evil one that plagues this world. And you can pray for his glory and his kingdom to be realized in our midst. You can pray in a new way. See, many of us are, 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 are not content to accept the provision that God has for us. You know, God promises us daily bread, like the manna in the wilderness. It only lasts for the day. It's enough for the day, and it's every day. Most of us want weekly bread, or monthly bread, or yearly bread, or decadely bread, right? We want, we want enough to supply us to where we can have a healthy margin, to where we don't actually have to trust God or anybody else. We have enough in the bank to where we're secure. And I'll, if it gets close to it, I can start trusting God in a couple of years. But right now, I'm trusting myself and my managing abilities. God says, I'm coming to you with what you need every day. And the reason why he wants this is because he doesn't want us to treat him like, like he's a gopher, like he's a fixer, like he's, a, like he's somebody who, who, can, who can grant wishes. He's calling us to be in relationship with him. He doesn't want us to treat him like, he's a, like we're a fighter jet and, he's go, and we're going to refuel very briefly before we go off on our own mission. The picture in Scripture is simply, he is the vine and we're the branches. If we will stay plugged into him, he will give us the provision, the support, the nourishment that we need to accomplish the, path, the plans that he would call us to do. How's this bouncing around inside of you today? 
where is this hitting you hardest? Uh, is there some, some little twinge of disappointment in your life right now because you are plagued with the realization that things aren't going the way you thought and you feel either responsible or you wonder why God let something happen that you can't see the good in? Is there some way in which you are still trying to grab life by the neck and wring it to make it give you what, make it give you, what you think you deserve? How is God trying to get your attention? To try and say, lay down your agenda. Lay down, your, lay down all the little things you want to use me for to accomplish your political will in, in an election year or to accomplish your, your social plan in a broken world or to accomplish your economic um, plan in a, in, in a place where the, the economy is downturned. In all those different ways, how is God calling us to say, uh, to submit to his big plan, a plan that includes all of those things, but so much more, and to surrender to his good and perfect will? Let's pray. Father, thank you for, thank you for the lessons of Palm Sunday. Uh, may we learn them well. Help us to join in the celebration of the coming king. Help us to eagerly await and expect uh, your second coming as we celebrate your first, as we celebrate the victory you, uh, you achieved over sin and over death and over brokenness and the victory you accomplished with the empty tomb. May we live as Easter Christians and may we live humbly devoted to you. For all the ways in which we still try to be the lords of our own lives, Father, show us um, how to humble ourselves. Give us the strength to humble ourselves. Help us to be devoted to you, a strong and a wise God who loves us dearly. Help us to cheerfully surrender ourselves to your plan, knowing that your ways are not our ways and that you are able to do exceeding abundantly beyond what we ask or think. And Father, help us to be satisfied. Help us to be satisfied, content, trusting you, knowing that you know our needs and you are at work to provide and you call us to cheerfully depend on you. In all these things, I pray that your, your Holy Spirit be powerfully present in our midst and that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org.